I live in the American Gardens building on West 81st Street on the 11th floor. My name is Zach Herger. I'm 35 years old. I'm the host of an award-winning podcast. I believe in taking care of myself and a balanced diet and a rigorous exercise routine. In the morning, if my face is a little puffy, I'll put on an ice pack while doing my stomach crunches. I can do a thousand now. After I remove the ice pack, I use a deep pour cleanser lotion. In the shower, I use a water-activated gel cleanser, then a honey almond body scrub, and on the face, an exfoliating gel scrub. Then I apply an herb mint facial mask, which I leave on for 10 minutes while I prepare for the rest of my routine. I always use an aftershave lotion with little or no alcohol because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Then moisturizer. Then an anti-aging eye balm, followed by a final moisturizing protective lotion. There is an idea of Zach Herger, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours. And maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable. I simply am not there. I can be found on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else podcasts are heard. Don't just look at it, eat it. Fun fact, Christian Bale has a very thick English accent and a bit of a lisp. So here's a tip if you'd like to do a decent impression of Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. You slow down your pattern of speech and you over-enunciate. Anyway, that was fun. That, so far, that's been my favorite intro. I really like that. I really like Christian Bale. American Psycho is a classic movie. Really bizarre. I don't know who dreamed that up, but anyway. So today I want to talk to you guys about using the rules to your advantage. This is a fun one. This is going to be lots of fun. There's going to be lots of operating in the gray, which is always good. So in order to take advantage of whatever situation situation you're in, um, God, I'm struggling now that I don't have a script in front of me. So to take advantage, you want to know all of the rules because it's so funny, like in real estate, everyone kind of has like a herd mentality. So if most people are writing ads one way or doing open houses one way, then everyone feels like they have to do it that way. And there are some agents out there that will do like raffles Well, they'll, they'll give away money if you go to their open house or they'll like rebate you on closing or pay part of your closing costs or whatever. Um, one guy like gives away trips and sometimes, uh, agents like get upset about that, but then it's like, well, if you would just have taken the time to read the rules, all of the stuff that this guy is doing is totally legal. And it's kind of stupid that you're not doing it because he's just basically like benefiting off of everybody else having a herd mentality and, and not doing the research. Um, some other things that people don't know about is like 
taking advantage of like tax law to lower your income tax, or in some cases you can make um, income like tax-free. That's one thing I do um, with house flipping. Um, though I'll touch on that later down the road. Um, and a lot of other things like that. So we're going to kind of explore an idea and it's like pretty in depth, but hear me out. Cause this is re like really good. This is what like a lot of people like at some of like the richest people in the world, this is how they like make money. This is how they keep their money. And, um, there's a famous American political family you may have heard of called the Clintons. And this is how they made the majority of their money. Um, and the way they did it was trying to basically um, cure uh, cure people of diarrhea in Africa. So <laughs> we'll get to it. So what I'm talking about is I'm talking about starting a nonprofit business. So when I'm talking about a nonprofit, I'm talking about a business that operates as a 501c3 corporation. So when you think of like most nonprofits, like let's say like the Salva Salvation Army, things like that, I believe that they do operate as a 501c3. And that's the most um, common um, way to set up a nonprofit. So a 501c3 has a couple different benefits. The first one is obvious. It's exempt from federal income tax. It's also exempt from federal unemployment tax or FUTA. Um, they can accept contributions that are tax deductible for the donor. So let's say you have some clothes that you're not wearing anymore um, or something like that, or just like clothes you got from like a family member and you don't like them and you want to get rid of them. So you donate them to the Salvation Army. Well, the Salvation Army takes that donation um, and they turn around and like sell it generally, like if it's clothing, and then you get to deduct on your taxes like what those clothing, what the clothing you donated were, um, were, were, were worth. So it's also um, beneficial to you. The other thing is, um, this is important. So another thing is that five hundred three or five hundred one c threes are also eligible for government and federal grants. So that's going to be important moving forward when we get more into this. They're also eligible, possibly eligible, for some state and local tax exceptions, exemptions. Sorry. So let's just go back over that real quick. You don't have to pay income tax. You don't have to pay, play, pay unemployment tax. You can get government, and, government grants. You, and in some cases, you don't have to pay local taxes. So that's like already like pretty good. Um, that's amazing, actually, because a regular business, you have to do all of those things. So you're like, well, how does that like really help me? So I'm going to quick go through like an article I found on CBS. I found this article probably in 2012 when I first looked at this idea because I thought it was really good. So I'm just going to basically like read you part of the article that has to do with this idea. And then we'll kind of like go back over it and break it down. And I know that it might be kind of like boring for me to like read part of an art article, but if you just listen to what this guy did, it is literally so juicy and you never ever hear of anybody like talking about this strategy so I'm just going to jump kind of to the middle, middle of an article, and we're going to follow this guy. His name is John Waskin. He was uh, 62 at the time of this article. He founded a charity to help people get out of debt. 
uh, also known as a credit counseling agency in Cornelius, North Carolina. So when folks in financial trouble consult outfit like Waskins, which was called the American Credit Counselors Corporation, or ACCC for short, they all receive the same basic help, a debt management plan um, or a DMP. A counselor by phone, internet, or in person examines their liabilities and income, figures out how much they can reasonably pay without starving, and then negotiates with credit card companies, banks, and departments, stores for lower payments. Clients then make one monthly payment to the agency, which sends the dough to the creditors. In exchange, the counseling agency receives a, quote, fair share payment from lenders, historically as much as 15% of the money recouped. So if you didn't pick up on that, if I'm a credit counselor and I get someone to start paying, I basically get a commission of up to 15% of their payments. Many agencies also charge their strapped customers fees, and Waskins ask for donations of $25 a month. And as a charity, counseling agencies can also receive contributions. Bank of America gave this guy $320,000 in 2002. Citibank, Discover, and MasterCard also showered the company with money. Over the years, Waskins collected $218,000 in annual compensation, quite a bit for the head of a small charity. So pay attention because here's where it gets real juicy. And his wife, Cheryl, was also on the payroll. But there's more. For two years, ACCC paid Pinnacle Credit Management $4.2 million to, among other things, send payments to their creditors. Guess who owned Pinnacle? Our friends John and Cheryl Waskin. Another company owned by the Waskins. Promotional marketing concepts collected $700,000 in the same two year, in the same two years for sending clients a newsletter. And Cheryl Waskins charged ACCC for office space. Such arrangements are ethical only if the board is independent and makes decisions that don't benefit its own members. Waskins claimed that neither he or his wife sat on the board, but in fact, it was composed solely of the two of them. Oh, I'm sorry, of their neighbors. So, um, okay, hold on here. Um, so you'd think that the Waskins would be thrilled with all the, uh, the money they were collecting. But in 2005, the agency folded and the, Was- the Waskins received uh, a $5.1 million pension. Um about the same as their company ACCC's annual budget. Some $2.8 million came from the sale of its database of debtors to a Florida credit counseling company. So I know that that's probably a lot to take in over a podcast. So let me just break it down. These people said, um, what's a good thing we could do to make money? Well, let's start a, a non-for-profit credit debt collection company, basically. And they marketed it as like, help you get out of debt. So they got, um, they charged the people they helped 25 bucks, not a huge fee. But then they also got quote donations from the companies they were doing debt collection for. And they were getting a commission for the, um, the debts that they recovered. So like everywhere they turned, they were making money. Oh, and by the way, all the money they were making was tax-free. 
So that's pretty amazing. The other way they, they that they collected money to make it, or the, the way they actually profited as individuals was not by actually um, working in their non-for-profit. It was by setting up businesses all around the non, non-for-profit business that charged the non-profit business that they owned. So one of the things that was in here is these people owned the building that their non-for-profit um, operated out of. So they basically charged themselves rent. The other thing that they did is their non-for-profit would send out a monthly newsletter and a, a third-party company that they owned would send it out, and they were charging the company $700,000 a year to send out a monthly newsletter. So really, like, if you have a nonprofit, the best thing to do with it is to set up companies all around it that act as a way to get your money out of the nonprofit into your pockets. So... And like this, like it kind of went over in, in this like short article, all of this stuff is like completely legal. Is it a hundred percent ethical? Well, no, I mean, not really. Um, it's gray, obviously. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it's not, you, you don't really know. I mean, obviously they got some people out of debt. There was some other stuff in the article about like how successful they were, but like, I understand they don't, guys don't want me like reading tons and tons of numbers. Makes sense. So, like, why is this so good? Like, like, what are some other, like, things we can think about besides, like, debt collecting? Because I know, like, debt collection, like, companies and, like, debt restructuring companies like that, those are, like, really hard um, to get certified. or It's hard to get them, like, to nonprofit status for a couple of reasons. That was like obviously one of them because credit card and other credit companies were like paying, giving quote donations to these places. And it like came under the spotlight. So those are like pretty hard. But when I was researching this for myself, I was like, well, at the time, like oil or at the time, gasoline was like really expensive and diesel fuel was really expensive. At the time I was looking at this, diesel fuel was like $4.20 a gallon in Omaha. So for me to fill up my truck was like $125 or $130, bucks, depending on the rate at the time. So I, And like a lot of stuff was going on. Um, there was like a big push for like green energy and like uh, alternative energy, like windmills and like all that stuff. So that was like really popular. And the other thing that was popular and still is now is um, state, local, and, like, the federal government is trying to, like, make sure that, like, towns, like, rural small towns in Nebraska and lots of other states don't just, like, completely dry up. Because in a lot of states, like, people are, are leaving small towns and small towns are just getting, like, smaller and smaller and smaller and cities are getting larger and larger. So states, especially in Nebraska, this is, like, a really big problem. States are like doling out money for you if you open a business in a small town. So a lot of like little towns in Nebraska now have like a, like a manufacturing, like a medium sized like manufacturing company. There's a town I sold a house in. It's a Lyons, Nebraska. And there's like really nothing in town. If you, there's only like two things you can really do is one is farm. Well, three, one is farm. The others work at the co-op. And then the other one is, um, in town, there's like a, like a small manufacturer of, um, farming equipment 
Um, I think like grain bins, stuff like that. So basically everyone in town like works there. So, and if you start one of those companies out there, like the, the, uh, the state of Nebraska will give you like major, um, will give you like, like really incentivizes it. So they'll give you like tax breaks. They'll give you like, um, they might give you some like grants, maybe even like forgivable, forgivable grants. So my idea and like the actual like business. Okay. So I'll just tell you my idea and then I'll kind of like give you like a little bit of a tweak on like what I think that you should do if you're interested in doing this. So my idea was there was a tons of like federal state and local grants for like researching alternative, like energy sources. So my idea was, and they do this like all the time in Europe is I wanted to like research, set up a um, non-for-profit like research company that where we would like research how to like turn cooking grease into like biodiesel. Now, like people do this. I think that like on the West Coast, they do this a lot. Like I said, they do it like all over Europe. And at the time, like it was getting like pretty popular for people to do like in their own backyards because people like me were like, "Um, I have like a mowing and like a junk removal business and I'm literally paying like $125 a week in, in fuel cost. So like what you could do is like you could buy some stuff online, like a little like setup online along with like um, some like engineering, uh, like mock-ups of like how to do it. And it was basically like a little like still or like a little like manufacturing, like basically it looked like a still, like how they, how they make moonshine. But what it what it did is it would like break down and purify like the cooking oil. And then you like added some like additives into it. And then like this little like setup would like cook that into like biodiesel, but it was like, it wasn't really like commercially like viable. So it was only, it was only big enough for you to like do it in your backyard as like kind of a hobby thing. So I was like, Oh, like this would be like a really, this is like a good opportunity to start like a non-for-profit because what I could do is I could like set up a non-for-profit where we like try to find like the best way to like um, the best way to like manufacture like biodiesel and then like sell it on like a big enough scale where I could like be supplying, you know, like whatever, like six or like 30% of the amount of people in like Omaha that like use diesel or something like that. So that was kind of like the, um, the like rough idea that I had. And that I, and then what I was going to do is I was going to open it in like a small town, like right outside of Omaha. So the reason that I would do that is I'd be like eligible for a lots of federal grants because there's tons of federal grants for alternative energy at the time. I think it was like 2010. It would be eligible for also there were state grants for researching that kind of thing. Then there was also like private grants through like university stuff like, oh, I guess a university isn't private. There's like university grants. There's private grants for like individuals that were like, you know, bleeding hearts. And then the other thing is like I would get like local tax breaks um, for for opening like a business in like a small town. Um, and then I could also potentially get like if I want to build like a um, like a building out there, like you could get some also like tax incentives to like build a building in these small towns. So I'm already getting like tons of handouts if I do this. So then what I would do is, so think of it as like the non-for-profit is like the middle, 
cog in a wheel. And then off of all those cogs, you're going to build other businesses that are for profit that perform, um, perform services that help your non-for-profit business run. So like one thing for this is like, it was like, well, I have to like start a, like some sort of like pumping company to go out and like find the, like, um, to find where I can like, um, get like this, like cooking oil that's been used because it was recycling cooking oil. So I was like checking all the box, recycling, clean energy, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, well, the first thing is I have to like get a, um, like a trucking company with like a pump to be able to pump grease. So like right there, you're like, you're setting up a trucking company. The other thing is like, you need a building to put this in. So you're going to start like a real estate business that like rents out um, industrial buildings. And then you buy the building with that for-profit company and rent it out for your, to your non-for-profit company. Um, I'm going to need like a bookkeeping for my business and like compliance. So I'm going to like start a business that does bookkeeping and um, compliance and then I'm going to need like a lot of like grant writing going on. So I'm going to like start like a grant writing business. So it just goes on and on and on until like you have so many businesses around it, that like all of the, everything that not the non for profit does, all the money that they get is just going to be going to your for profit businesses. And then, and like, that's really, that's really the only like thing that like a non for profit usually produces. So you've probably seen things going around like around Christmas or whatever. And um, well, I shouldn't say every nonprofit. That's really not fair. I mean, the Red Cross, a lot of those like do a lot of good things. But you always like find out that like every politician like has some bizarre foundation or the other thing is like every like retired um, professional athlete has them. Every mus like famous musician, everyone in Hollywood that like makes tons of money has them because it, like you can shelter lots of money doing this. And you can also make lots of money off of like who you are. So let's look at like um, the Clintons. And um, I would never, first of all, <laughs> I would never commit suicide because I am too much of an egomaniac. So if you ever hear that I committed suicide, please investigate it as a murder because just like Jeffrey Epstein, I would never kill myself. So like the Clintons, this is like the famous one that everyone always talks about is like they had the Clinton Global Initiative and they would fly all around the world and like do all these wonderful things for people. And their main thing was curing diarrhea in Africa. Well, think about that because you get diarrhea from and they were really saying clean water. So that basically means diarrhea because if you drink unclean or like bad tap water or bad water, you get dysentery so bad you die. So a lot of people don't know this, but like the number one cause of death in the entire world is dysentery. So diarrhea. So they were like, well, one of our main goals is to cure diarrhea in Africa. Well, you can never provide all of Africa with clean drinking water. So one of the main things you want to do if you do decide to do something like this is you have to make sure that the, the, the non-for-profit company you set up can never ever achieve its goals. So you're always going to, you're always going to have a sales pitch to get money from people who might want to, um, you know, give you money for your research or might want to give you money for your, like um, you're working on your cure, you're working on your like um, 
uh, anti-diarrhea pill. So you all, you always like have a never ending sales pitch and the problem that you're going after never, ever gets solved because if the problem ever got solved, your company would just fold up and go away. So like the Clintons had the like diary in Africa. There's other, other people have them like the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation. You know, it's like, we're going to like cure AIDS all over the whole world or, or like, they're always like these things that like never, ever end. And you can also look at that too, as like, um, like green energy, like, um, climate change and everything like that, everything like that. So that's like a good, that's like a good sales pitch too, because, um, you can never, ever like the climate is like literally always changing. You're never going to be able to stop it. So that's like a fantastic sales pitch because it never, ever ends. So you want to make sure that you get involved with something that like never, ever, that never, ever gets solved. So it's just a never ending thing. So what I would do if I was going to start something like this today is I was, I would literally go to, I guess there's probably like some websites you can do, but I would just go in and, and try to find like, like what are some areas where there are like, um, there's lots of like government, um, federal government grants, um, and foundation grants available. And then I would just pick whatever topic has the most money available because what we want to do is we really want to like just find like the main vein of the most money we can get our hands on and then start there. So, and I'm sure that there's like tons out there. I didn't like research that for this um, episode because there's so many out there that you could like find something that um, maybe doesn't have like tons of, of uh, competition. I'm sure like the big ones like um, – finding a cure for AIDS, like global warming, all that stuff. Like there's going to be other like huge non-for-profits like vying for that cash. So try to get something a little bit more niche, you know, where I was like going for a niche. But I think that that's like a wonderful thing if you could get it set up. Now, obviously like setting up a 501, 501c3 uh, is extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult to like get it approved. The other thing is like once you like settle on like some mission statement and settle on some like purpose for your uh, non-for-profit business, you can – I don't think you could like ever change it. So they're like pretty um, specific as far as like what you can do with them. So you can't really change. But I think that that could be like a really good idea for anyone who like wanted to get into something like that. And like people make tons of money all the time with non non-for-profits. The caveat is if you're like, oh, I want some like some more research. Nowadays, you like really have to dig because all, there's lots of articles about um, I'm a millennial. I tried to set up a 501c3 because um, I want to start like a non for profit for like killing, like um, making sure like uh, animals don't die or like uh, making sure like they're trying to get a, a cure for feline AIDS. And they're like, and I couldn't make any money doing it. So. Um, you have to watch out for those. Watch out for articles about anything business. Pay attention to who's writing them. If it's some millennial that's getting twenty dollars for a uh, three thousand page or three thousand word essay, um, I would take what they're saying with a grain of salt because they obviously don't have any horse sense if they're giving away their fucking time for twenty bucks. So if you guys need more info about a nonprofit, um, you can holla at your boy, <laughs> you can contact me and I'll give you some good resources for it if you'd like. So that's kind of an interesting idea. It's not specific, it's broad, but if you work it, you can get rich. 
And um, make sure you pick something with a good sales pitch that really tugs on the old heartstrings because that's where the money's at. Remember, like I always say, you have to go, you're going after women. You know, anytime we're selling anything or setting up a service, you have to be doing it with a woman in mind. So when I flip a house or remodel a kitchen, I'm selling those products to women because women spend money. They also donate money. So we want to make sure that whatever we're going to be doing for a non-for-profit, you really want it to tug on the heartstrings, especially of women, because they're the ones that are going to like attend these like galas with their husband where you're selling, you know, a meal for like $10,000 a plate. So make sure it's appealing to women, make sure it's something they can get on board for, and then also make sure it's something that's so good that you'll have a bunch of people out there evangelizing for like what you're doing. So if you're doing something so good um, and it has such a good message, if you can just start getting like, you know, stay-at-home soccer moms and stuff like that to go out and start like telling their friends about it and how like what a, this amazing non-for-profit and what they're doing, that's the road to riches for sure. Anyway, moving on. Like I said, if you guys want more information, let me know. So moving on to the business for sale of the ep, I almost said week, but I'm doing them every day, um, is we're really shifting gears. This is completely different than a non-for-profit. Um, and it is an equipment rental business priced under the value of the assets. And it is in Glenwood Springs, California. And what they do is they, they rent out all kinds of different construction equipment like lifts, um, skid steers, things like that. And this is actually like a really good deal. And it, it could be a really good deal for a couple of reasons. So the asking price is $2.65 million, uh, $2,650,000. It cash flows 761,000. So for something like this, that's like a pretty decent price because it's about, what is that? It's a little bit over like three times earnings, which that's like pretty good for this because they're basically saying that this is, they're setting it up as an asset sale, which is good because um, companies like this have so many like physical assets um, that you should be able to um, finance like a big portion of the asking price. So something like this, you could probably finance like 80, 80% of it if you would like with a actual like SBA loan. And then you would just have to divide up the remaining 20% between you and the seller or, um, investors that you have in the seller is how I would do it. Um, if you're buying like a houses to flip, um, or like, uh, rental houses or like a business, don't ever put your own money in it. That doesn't make sense to me. If you're going to be doing all the work, why are you like putting all your own money in it? You're taking, you're doing all the work and you're taking all, all the risk with like signing your name on the loan. So like why throw your own money into it? That's a different topic. So <clears throat> I'll just kind of go over this. This is like a pretty interesting business. So the biggest reason this business is still available is that the seller has made the sale of the business contingent on the purchase of the real estate at the, at closing but he's changed his mind. For the first time, he has agreed to allow the property to be leased instead of bought. So that's good. That's going to make it easier. That's a more makes it more appealing because we don't really want to own the real estate. We don't really care about that. It's not a real estate play. Um, 
so he's also allowing for a long-term lease with that too. Duh, we already know that. So the owner, this is interesting. The owner spends 19 weeks in Alaska mining gold during the peak season every year. This negative impact, this negatively impacts the bottom line at an estimated $250,000 a year, which means they should have made at least $1 million. No, I don't care about that. It, a company you pay $2.6 million for, it shouldn't really matter if you're there or not. I don't like that. Okay, so this company has four main areas of revenue. One is equipment rental, obviously. They have over 100 pieces of equipment that they uh, rent out and keep them maintained accordingly. Uh, they sell, rent, customized trailers, um, Caterpillar equipment, in, including D8s, uh, compactors, Hyundai, uh, Wacker light towers, generators, Genie man lifts, all uh, fracking trailers, etc. So they have all kinds of different construction equipment, including mining, and, mining and oil and gas equipment. Um, they also do sales. They sell equipment. Several big names. Uh, they provide service. They provide long-term service for different kinds of equipment and um, customization. The oil industry is particular. In particular, has specialized uh, requirements uh, that they are uniquely able to fulfill. So they do. Um, they cover construction and oil and gas, which is interesting. The other thing too is if you're interested in a business like this, and it's in an industry that's like. Um, at the particular time you're looking at it is looking bad. Um, you might be able to get a good deal. The other thing too, is obviously the person that's selling this is more interested in mining for gold in Alaska than running this business. So if you could say, if you could come to this guy and say, Hey, like I'll put money in your pocket to go like up to Alaska and mine gold all year long. Like, let's just make a deal that works for both of us. You're going to be able to get a better price. So very interesting. Um, the property that they're leasing is 11,200 square foot building with a 5.7 acres of property there. Um, it's off of, it can be seen from I-70. Like I said, it's in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Um, there's six full-time employees. And let's see what else. All right. <laughs> All right. So um, if you'd like some more information on this, you can reach out to Jeff Chapman. Uh, is, is Nagel, is Nagel. Uh, his phone number is 303-905-7607. Or if you uh, didn't catch that and you'd like, you can just shoot me an email or contact me um, on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I'll have that in the show notes. So that's like a pretty, uh, a pretty cool, like unique business for sale. And you don't see like a lot of equipment rental businesses for sale that often. And the ones you do see don't usually make it to like the big public sites because rental businesses are like really appealing for a variety of reasons. One is like, let's say you, let's say you buy like a hydraulic lift. You're going to be able to rent that thing out for like 10 or 12 years before it, before it gets to the point where it can no longer be like serviced and repaired. So like if you, if you pay 50,000 bucks for that thing or a hundred thousand bucks, but you rent it out, um, at a rental rate of like $700 a day, 
um, and it's rented out like most days of the year, right? Because if like I'm Kiwit or if I like have a huge like commercial construction business, my projects go on for like years at a time. So like think in Omaha, they're doing like an expansion on like a children's hospital here. Well, it's been going on for like three years. So you're going to have that lift out on the job site for like three years. So that's like, you know, five to $700 a day for like basically the whole time you have it. So 10 years. So you're getting a huge return on the stuff you, you, that you buy. The other thing is you're going to have tons of like repeat clients and a company like this has tons of repeat clients already in place. And then the other thing is like, they don't really have like tons of competition. Like there is some like national competition that you definitely have to like consider when buying that. But, um, somebody like most people aren't going to be like, you know, I'm going to go like buy 300 pieces of like heavy equipment and like start renting them out because most people, even like me, I, I would have no, I have, would have no idea like what to even buy. You know, I don't, I don't know like on like big construction sites or like mining or oil and gas, like what they even use. So I do like that. I think that's good. Anything that you can like get constant like revenue out of is a good thing. Um, so moving on to the businesses for sale. There's some good ones this week. I really like, I really like them. So the first one is a carpet cleaning business. Tons of competition with a carpet cleaning business. But I still like it. Uh, I know some people who have a carpet cleaning business. They've had it for like 10 years. The person who actually owns it has nothing to do with it. He just owns it. He just gets, he just cashes checks to have it. But they're busy all the time. Um, if you call them to get your carpet cleaned, they're like booked out for at least a week. Um, they have a couple different crews that go out all the time. And it's like they're it just they're just like a money maker because it's just it's like kind of like mowing. There's lots of competition, but there's like literally so much demand you really can't go wrong. The other thing with like carpet cleaning um, is like now after like the virus, COVID nineteen. In case you're listening to this five years from now, and there's been tons of them, COVID nineteen. Um, after that is over, people are going to be like, well, I want like, want my whole house cleaned. Like I want to like start from like no bacteria or like another good thing about this too is like, even like the flu, I think people are going to be more like, well, everybody in my house had the flu. So now it's like a good time to like have everything in the entire house disinfected and carpet cleaning is like one place to like start with that. So I think like, I think like cleaning and like disinfecting and stuff like that is going to be like a lot more popular, like going forward. Uh, I can't believe like how many people are like wearing masks now. Um, I don't like really get it personally, but that's a different story, but it's like, everyone is like wearing masks. They're wearing masks in their car when they're alone. Who the fuck do you think you're going to like, you think you're going to get like, COVID-19 from yourself? That doesn't make any sense. People are wearing them all the time. We just took my son in for like his first like battery of like um, shots. Um, and I don't need any anti-vaxxing. Like if you want to comment about that, just keep it to yourself. Um, so we went into the doctor's office um, and it's not like at a hospital. It's just like a clinic or whatever. And they like give you a mask, like right when you get in there. So everyone's wearing a mask that's in there as a patient. And then everyone, you would think everyone who's like working at the doctor's office would have a mask on. Well, everybody did like in the lobby, but then like you went back to where like patients were going back in the rooms and, and the, the women in the middle that I guess they're like secretaries or like, 
or like medical secretaries or whatever, like they have their mask pulled down around their neck. So it's like you work at like a medical office. If there's any time to like have one of those stupid masks on, it would be like when you're in there. So I don't get it. So I think that people, but people are paranoid. They're wearing them everywhere. So I think carpet cleaning, yeah, love it. Easy to operate. You can have like kids run it for you. Don't worry about it. Um, The next one is I think this would be like really fun um, is an antique dealer or like opening like an, an, becoming an antique dealer or whatever. So like, I really like this and I kind of like, I didn't, so like when I, when I had my like trash out business, so for those of you who haven't listened to the other episodes, I had a business where I would clean out like foreclosed houses. Um, but sometimes like they weren't really foreclosed on. Sometimes the people like just passed away and their kids were like so old that they were like, just like let the bank have it. So I cleaned out this one house in like a historic part um, of Omaha and the people that had passed away were like literally in their upper nineties and um, their kids were like in their upper seventies or whatever. So they were like, fuck it. Like we're not cleaning it out. So I cleaned it out and these people had like tons and tons of like cool stuff, like antiques. So whenever we like cleaned a house out that was full of like good stuff, what I would always do is I would like sell the stuff out of it. So I would go there to like bid the job. And while I was there to bid the job, I would take like good high definition photos of anything that I thought could be sold. And then when I got the job, I would just list all those things on like Craigslist or Facebook. And then I would just sell the stuff like directly out of the house. So it was like a really sweet gig. But most of the time it was like um, a kitchen table. Those were good sellers. A kitchen table with like chairs where you could like shine up the top. You could get like a couple hundred bucks for like nothing. So that was good. But one house I cleaned out, they literally had like tons of antiques, like old like typewriters, an old birdcage, um, crap like that. And I, and I was like, well, I didn't know anything about that kind of stuff. I don't know like the values of a typewriter from 1920. So I like threw it on Craigslist and like it sold right away and I got like top dollar for it. So I was like, oh, that's like really cool. And then we were upstairs and um, the house had like a partially finished dormer. So a finished dormer, like if you're not like familiar with old houses, kind of, it's kind of like some, it's kind of like, um, an attic space where just like the middle of the attic is finished into like, kind of like usually like a long bedroom. And then most of the time there's like a little, uh, like shelving that you can remove to get to like the attic space behind there. So we were like cleaning out the attic space behind there and I found like an old map and it was like an old battle map from like World War II, Um, probably like the unit of the guy that lived there. Um, And like on the back there, like everybody in the unit or company, I don't, I don't know anything about that, like signed the back of it. So it was like an original battle map from 19, like from like World War II. So I'm like, oh, that's like really cool. So I was going to go have it appraised, but like I can't find an appraiser in Omaha. Um, but I looked it up online and I think it could be worth like maybe like five grand. So anyway, like an antique dealer, you would just like buy and sell stuff like that battle map or like old typewriters, stuff like that. I think that could be like really good. And I think that the key to that is you'd have to like specialize in a couple different things. Um, so like you could like specialize, uh, in stuff from like world war two or like stuff from, 
like a certain place, something like that. You'd kind of have to like specialize and just go after like those specific things. And you'd have to go after things that you know you could actually like buy cheap and like sell. So I think that that's like really cool. Like that would be like something that would be interesting to me to do. And I think that if you could if you could source the stuff, that would be the hardest part, right, is finding the stuff to sell. If you could like source it um, and like set up a strategy to source things, I think you could actually make a lot of money doing that. Um, you know, like a rare art dealer, that's sort of like an antique antique dealer. So, yeah, I like that one too. I think that's a cool idea. You might have to start it uh, part-time at first and then like work it into a full-time thing, but I like it. The third one is really fucking weird and it is a clown service. <laughs> so a clown service, I guess you would dress, you dress up like a clown and like go to like birthday parties or like bar mitzvahs. And I had to do some like research about this because I had no idea what you can make as a clown. Apparently the average clown charges $200 an hour to clown, I guess. And so if you have a calling to be a clown, apparently there is at least some money in, in it. However, birthday parties and bar mitzvahs don't – that's like a weekend, night and weekend thing. You're not going to be going to like birthday parties in the middle of the day usually. Um, the other thing too is like I've been to like a lot of birthday parties. Even I've been to like a lot of like birthday party, parties for like relatives or uh, or like my aunt and uncle, for like, their sm like my uh, cousins when they were little. I've never been to a birthday party where there was a clown. I don't think I've ever been anywhere besides like a Barnum and Bailey circus where there was a clown. So um, it might be hard to like find gigs to be a clown, but I guess if you could find the gigs and you could charge $200 an hour, like that's okay with me. So I say yes to clown service, but, but I think that that's like more of a part-time thing. So carpet cleaning. Yes. Antique dealer. Yes. Clown service. Maybe as a side gig, don't love it, but it's okay. Um, Kind of like I said in the opening, if you guys, or like I think I said it last time, if you guys wouldn't mind, uh, it would really help me out if you guys could share the show on social media, tell your friends about it. Um, I'm just going to keep it going. I'm just going to keep it going. But if you guys can help me grow the show, I would really appreciate that. Um, also, you guys can hit me up on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I have a YouTube channel now and uh, anywhere that podcasts can be heard. So... Until next time, we'll see you later, guys. Thanks.